This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 19th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In his new book, Reagan Land, Rick Perlstein traces the rise of the conservative movement through Jimmy Carter's time as president. We talked about the Carter years, regulation, and the coalitions and fights that produced the Reagan presidency. Where were conservatives, and more broadly, where was the Republican Party in 1977? What was the sort of general mood and thought about where they were in the world? They were going the way of the Whigs. <laughs> uh, when I, I say that the the opinion journalists of America entered thumbsucker, thumbsucker season, you know, and kind of like August when Congress is out of session, everyone has to kind of write stories about, you know, the meaning of the universe. They were all writing that uh, the Republican Party was in a, a worst position than it had than had any American party been uh, in over a century, and they were uh, quite specific that the reason was its takeover uh, by uh, the conservative wing. Um, policy people, uh, economists, probably especially, like to look at presidents as just sort of a series of decisions or uh, policy ideas that are separate from whatever circumstances that might have. Pre- produce them as if they kind of choose uh, history from a catalog you know? right and, and so when you look at uh, Jimmy Carter who's obviously all over this book because it's about uh, his the his time in office in part um, you know if you're looking at this from a regulatory perspective uh, in a particular libertarian regulatory perspective you look at the presidency of Jimmy Carter and you look at that series of decisions you say wow this was this is right. some some pretty interesting good stuff here. Did he get credit for any of that stuff up up through 1980? Not at all. That's that's not how the conservative movement works. It's good guys and bad guys, and he was a bad guy. Um, so you know, I remember uh, in my research, I wasn't really old enough that just for example, when 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 Walter Mondale you know ran for president in 1984, you know Ronald Reagan called him Vice President Malaise, right? Not you know the vice president of an administration that you know cut hundreds of OSHA regulations, you know banned new ones. Uh, one of the big pollsters, Democratic pollsters at the time. Uh, who's still around, um, Hart, I'm kind of forgetting his first name, uh, said, um, no relation to the senator, said, if you ask people what they think about the Democratic Party, the answer you get is, you know, the the New Deal answers. So they did not manage to break through, uh, just as, you know, Bill Clinton didn't manage to break through when he said the era of big government is over, or, you know, uh, Barack Obama didn't manage to break through. That that, that's kind of not how the game works. Yeah, but you you look at, Again, that list of decisions the, right. uh, under the Carter administration, you saw an end of the Civil Aeronautics Board, right. the creation of OIRA and the Office of Management and Budget, deregulation of commercial trucking, rail freight, and last but not least, the legalization of home brewing, which launched- Yes, yes, James Fallow's favorite, yes. <laughs> which launched a generation of tinkerers who later became big brewers themselves. He tried to uh, decriminalize mar- marijuana, but- uh, unfortunately, his drug policies are was found um, uh, prescribing quaaludes to White House staffers. So, <laughs> so, so was it in part the fact that uh, Carter was, you know, to the extent that he was bouncing from uh, ideology to ideology? That is, as as a matter of practicality, of just deciding this this thing is an idea that tends to be associated with these people over here, but it will be it will solve our problem. He didn't seem at least even capable of capitalizing on that. 
Well, he was not a big fan of capitalizing on policy decisions for political reasons in any event. Whenever his you know, political staffers asked him to start thinking about planning for the 1980 presidential campaign, he would, you know, shoo them away. You know, a line that people have talked about in the book as a favorite, it's definitely a favorite of mine, is from his his um, uh, diary in which he says, I, I, I have to appoint, you know, like 150 new federal judges because they they basically um, Congress passed a law that he signed reforming the federal bench. And so I don't want to do this. I don't want to be the person to. So, you know, it's almost like he he was very anti-political. Right. He uh, wanted to always be seen as doing the right thing. You know, James Fallows wrote the famous article, The Passionless Presidency. He always wanted to be seen as a moral person. Right. Which kind of meant not taking advantage of things politically. So he would give speeches. You know, I have one you know, way at the back of the book, you know, it's kind of typical um, stump speech. This was to a, a group of, you know, Democratic workers in, uh, you know, kind of Essex County, New Jersey, which he talked about how wonderful the New Deal is and Franklin Roosevelt was, and then bragged about, you know, all his deregulation. So he, you know, didn't exactly kind of create this kind of, you know, straight arrow of a political message. He was always kind of all, all over the place in the messages. But when it came to, you know, what he believed in and what he think, th- thought, you know, his job was as president, deregulation was very close to his heart. Uh, and, you know, the reason for that, I think, had a lot to do with, you know, the fact that um, the way I've described, you know, the kind of Keynesian model failing, you know, the way uh, the Democratic Party, you know, had, you know, famous formulation, um, tax, 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 spend, 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 elect, 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 just wasn't working like it used to. Uh, I talk, describe it as kind of like a, a bicycle where the chain is no longer attached. You know, it just didn't seem to be working, right? Uh, you know, in my judgment, you know, this was kind of a one-time problem having to do with, you know, Arab oil shocks and that sort of thing. But, you know, the economy, um, the, the rules no longer seem to apply, stagflation, and um, so the idea that, you know, there was too much government was, you know, something his closest policy advisor was, you know, this guy, Burt Lance, who ended up also leaving office because of scandal, who was this very conservative Georgia banker. You you talk about how Jimmy Carter wanted to be viewed as having done the right thing in, in all these circumstances, and certainly not the least of which was appointing Paul Volcker right. uh, at the Federal Reserve. It, yeah. Uh, and, and it seems pretty clear uh, from your writing and s- some other writings that I've read that this was devastating to his chances at reelection. I mean, you, you, to, to this day, you, you know, when people, you know, kind of uh, recite the bill of particulars about why Jimmy Carter was a terrible president and deserved to go, they'll say, oh, 20% interest rates, right? Which was, you know, intentional, right? I mean, it was an intentional thing introduced into the economy, you know, by Paul Volcker with the agreement of Jimmy Carter, even though it wasn't necessarily his policy, you know, Car- again, Carter's political aides telling him, why don't you distance yourself from this stuff Paul Volcker is doing? Carter continually refused to do so. And one of his very few promises, campaign promises, he was very vague when it came to policy in the 1976 election. Remember, he was running on these kind of symbols and personalities. And he was like the the American singer songwriter with the, you know, he, uh, with the with the with the plaid shirt who was going to bring us back to authenticity and honesty was that he would never induce a recession intentionally to fight inflation, which was you know exactly what he did. Uh, and he loved the idea of sacrifice that was also very close to his heart. So, you know, on Election Day, you do have 10 percent unemployment, you know, 10 percent inflation, 20 percent interest rates. And, you know, a terrible, terrible recession. 
you know, really just crushing industrial jobs in America. And it carries over to the first couple of years of Reagan's administration. You know, the, the Republicans have a terrible year in 1982. But, you know, lo and behold, belatedly, it seems to work. So the, the economy is, you know, kind of relatively humming along by 1984 with very little inflation. And, you know, <laughs> poor Vice President Malays, you know, ends up only with the state of Minnesota. You know, lots of paradoxes and ironies in this story. Yeah. One of the things that that I enjoy uh, in particular, and I'm, I'm racing ahead in parts of your book to get to the next one, which is uh, detailing the failure of political expertise. Oh, yeah. That is that is that is especially among the the commentariat over and over again. Reagan, of course, what had a, was a public figure for a very long time and broadcasting uh, movies, most of which are not very good. Um, he was a major corporate spokesman. He was the head of a union. He was the governor of California. Why, after all of that, was he still so underestimated in terms of in terms of being somebody who presented well and 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 as a clever person? on television. Why was he so underestimated? He never lost a debate is one of the points I make, including against Robert F. Kennedy that, you know, he, 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 Robert F. Kennedy was so mad. He wanted to fire the guy who got him into a debate with Ronald Reagan over the Vietnam war. And yet at the same time, you know, this is correct from the horse's mouth from Carter Staffers, who told me their number one strategy to, and to, 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 to nail this because as the memo, as the chapter title puts it, the memo said Carter is smarter than Reagan was to have, Reagan on stage next to Carter for just one debate. That's all it would take. And by the way, a debate in which they structured it in the negotiations to make sure that Carter had lots of time to correct Reagan's mistakes, right? Because everyone loves to hear, you know, a school marm tell you all the statistics you got wrong. (laughs) And, you know, when, you know, these famous things happen in, in, in the 1980 debate in which, you know, Reagan lies about his record on social security, you know, lies about his record on Medicare, which, you know, in 1961, he said it was going to make us all into slaves of the state, you know? Uh, and then he said, Oh, I just was, was, was supporting one bill instead of another bill. And Carter says, basically you're making things up. And Reagan says, there you go again. And when that happened backstage at the debate, Rick Hertzberg told me they were all hiving, hiving each other because he was playing right into their strategy, which was that the next day's headlines were these are all the things that Reagan made up about his record. Right. And that leads me to the to the next thing. This was the sort of the most stunning thing that that came across uh, in your book that, uh, you know, I was not old enough to remember any of this stuff. Uh, but the, this notion that Jimmy Carter was mean. Right. Uh, Very nice little bit of uh, brilliant campaign stagecraft. On the part of the Reagan people, and and so because it, that's certainly not his uh, reputation today. Yeah, so they came up with the strategy that was the, the kind of Karl Rove gets credit for as the guy who says you take the guy's biggest strength and you you turn it against him. Uh, but basically, you know, Reagan again said things over and over again that were you know untruth, untrue, uh, deceptive, um, you know, kind of nuts. You know that you know trees cause pollution. And Carter was just kind of itching to call him out on it. And when he did, the media uh, kind of um, elevated their role as, you know, kind of referees, you know, called the foul, you know, kind of you're not allowed to, you know, attack the other. Certainly you can't attack the other candidate by saying he's 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 flirting with racism. Right. Which is something Carter did. And they were able to use that to suddenly find uh, Barbara Walters, you know, looking Jimmy Carter in the eye on her interview show and saying, can you promise not to be mean? 
And they, you know, you can see the memo. We're going to use the meanness issue. And then once reporters are, you know, asking Jimmy Carter why he's being so mean, uh, it's it's an enormous advantage because it's taking away Carter's, um, you know, even even with the economy tanking, you know, even with you know, kind of so many evident failures in America's role in the world, he at least there was at least this idea that he, you know, he was the gray flannel shirt guy, you know, he was the mustard colored sweater, he was the guy who was going to tell the truth, and uh, the exit polls really show that was no longer the case by election day. So. I started this by asking where the Republican Party was in 1977, but where were they in, you know, late 1980? They were in much better shape, right? I mean, not only had they won the presidency in a landslide and, and you know, like I said, they went into that debate as a tie. I mean, it's one time in history when a, a debate clearly caused, you know, a victory. Uh, not only that, uh, a lot of the most powerful House members lost their seats uh, like you know, people in leadership positions. And more importantly, I think, even more impactful than the presidency of Reagan in a lot of ways, uh, you get these new right senators uh, defeating these liberal lions, you know, defeating George McGovern, you know, defeating Frank Church, you know, defeating Birch Bay, defeating, you know, these kind of heartland liberals, right? So the idea that Idaho had a liberal senator whose you know, greatest passion was arms control, or that South Dakota elected and reelected this guy who, in the, in the form of George McGovern, was the most liberal senator, a guy who was against the Vietnam War in 1962, right? And suddenly, those guys are gone. And you get in their place people who are movement conservatives. Yeah, you look at the, the maps, the electoral maps of 1976 and 1980, and uh, you wonder how how is this the map for for these electoral wins? Because um, uh, one of the reasons was um, Roger Stone was able to um, bribe the Liberal Party to slate uh, John Anderson as their candidate instead of Jimmy Carter with a briefcase of full of one hundred thousand dollars as at the direction of Roy Cohn. But you know that's politics. <laughs> Echoes of today, I suppose. Given the uh, you know this time period for. Uh, the right, mm -hmm. broadly speaking, what are the what are the big lessons that that echo to today for you? Uh, that conservative policies, <laughs> libertarian policies, remain unpopular among the electorate. I run down the list, you know, of you know, like the people saying, you know, whatever, sixty two percent thought that you know the levels of taxation taxation were fine, that sort of thing, and that you know, politics really in an electoral democracy is about you know putting on a good show, you know. And I think the lesson for conservatives is, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really sure. What do you think? Well, to the extent that uh, we've see, you're, you're talking about putting on a good show, if you do that at the expense of good policy, people will just get tired of the show. <laughs> Yeah. And they'll and they'll cancel the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully, you know, but I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It's 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 uh, it's hard to kind of I mean, the reason I write thousand page books is I I have a hard time kind of coming up with simple lessons. But I think it's um, definitely the case. Uh, and I'd love for, you know, your listeners to give it a read and tell me what they think. Feel free to reach out to me. 
that Reagan's victory was not a mandate for conservative or libertarian public policy. If you, if you look at the numbers, um, one of my um, favorite uh, examples even is that it wasn't even uh, uh, the Iran hostages, that people who thought that the Iran hostages were the most important issue favored Carter over Reagan by a, by a ratio of two to one. <laughs> So, you know, the things that kind of get enshrined in history as the cliches uh, often don't kind of bear historical scrutiny. Rick Perlstein's latest book is Reaganland. And now to thank a Cato podcast sponsor, Robert Wilson. Thank you for your continued support of the Cato Institute and the Cato podcast. Cato's work promoting individual liberty, limited government, free markets and peace wouldn't be possible without supporters like you. Robert, again. Thank you. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.